Hello and welcome to I'd Sooner Forget This, a podcast where guests share with you artefacts from their past. Like when I was 20 and wrote a blog quoting myself saying, there is a beautiful complexity to simplicity that complexity cannot mirror. Whoa, that's deep. Okay. Or awful. Yeah, no, it's awful. It's awfully deep, in the words of Roots Manoeuvre, and it's also deeply awful. Uh, I'm Daryl Smith, and joining me today is comedian and host of the Comedian's Comedian podcast, Stuart Goldsmith. Yes, it's another three comedian word intro. That's me. (laughs) Yes, hello. Hello. Very lovely to be here. Uh, Stu, what are we going to be looking at today? I have brought with me, in spirit... Uh, but not in actual uh, physical reality, although I do have a picture of it right here, a, a battered and ancient bowler hat. Um, and I, I think it's a Dubai bowler hat, although I might be wrong. might be wrong with the name. Um, it's a hat that I wore with me uh, on stage, stage on the street uh, throughout the vast majority of my 10-year or so street performing career. Why is it something that fills you with embarrassment? Because I'm fairly sure that I, as a teenager, thought it would be cool to wear a bowler hat. So I pretty much learnt to juggle a bowler hat so that I would have an excuse to have one with me at all times. (laughs) And that fills me with the horrors. It's like you watch a Tim Burton thing and it's a bit quirky. You think, oh, I'll be like, I'm quirky. I sort of hate everyone around me. I hate everyone at school. I want to point out to the world how different I am. This will be a really good excuse to show people that I'm a, I'm a pretty interesting kind of a guy who would have a who would have a bowler hat. <laughs> Only an interesting guy, surely. And uh, and as a result, uh, I uh, I mean, it is it is a big part, I think, of why I ended up getting into circus and then becoming a street performer. A lot of which I enjoyed. There are some cringy things about that, um, but I broadly am very much in favour of street performing. I love it. It's just that the hat itself was like this. It's like my secret shame within it. You, you you were drawn to street performing and so I could wear circus, a circus so you could wear a hat well it's it's more that the hat kind of exemplifies the the way in which I was drawn into the idea of circus which was as a sort of not exactly a cry for help but kind of a cry for hey everyone look how different and interesting I am oh uh, okay and so the hat was a visual representation of yes. that yes so where did you get it from uh, very difficult in Leamington Spa in the 90s to get hold of a hat, certainly one that would fit my big head. Um, so I believe, gosh, that's a good question. I think I must have ordered it. I must have ordered it from one of the uh, two or three juggling catalogues in these pre-internet days. I ordered it from either Oddballs or Butterfingers. So that is a juggling hat? Well, uh, yes and no. You do get specifically juggling hats. What are they called? The Peter Pole hat, maybe? Which is like a, a triple thick felt hat you get these days. But it looks like a juggling hat. It's, e- it's easier to juggle. It's very heavy. It doesn't blow away in the wind. It's got lots of grip on it. This is an odd term, but you know, from a juggling point of view, it's got a. It, it, you know, it's easy to catch. The brim curves in, so you only need to catch it a bit, and you've got it. I don't like those. They they make you look. I know I've got dear friends who wear them, and good for you. But uh, they don't look cool. Whereas, like an actual proper bowler hat like a proper felt, old-timey-wimey 1920s bowler hat would have looked cool. The one I had was somewhere in between. It was like a kind of... It was made with juggling in mind, mm. but it wasn't made easier to juggle. So it was... What I'm saying is it's not one of those dorky juggler's hats. It was a cool one. Of course it was. So dorky. <laughs> Did you wear it when you weren't doing circus? I... 
I, in all honesty, I don't think I did. I feel like I feel like I did. I kind of wore it. You know that um, my mother-in-law has a, a sort of framed a uh, little uh, bit of text you know these days people don't have pictures in their houses they have like a, a sentiment yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean and hers says always wear your invisible crown you know which I we get that right that's yeah, an right. idea of like yes you should always remember that you are somehow the leader of a monarchy whatever you know it's good to stand up right you know it's an invisible crown great I think I always wore my invisible bowler hat I think I god I was such a loser and I I think I I I didn't wear it socially. I probably tried wearing it like walking down the street, but it didn't last. I didn't have the conviction. <laughs> of course, you're looking back on it now, it's the conviction. I was going to say it's the conviction that makes you cool. Not in all cases, but it probably would have been, it would be possible for someone today to be 16 or 17 years old and wear a bowler hat and not come off like an absolute dick. But I wasn't that someone. What were you then? Um, I was a failed goth. I was a failed goth. I was a goth who, is it again, pre-internet, you had to get all your goth clothes from a shop in Levington called Mystique. And uh, that's where you got your patchouli and your incense and your crystals. I would wear kind of black military surplus trousers, like a black, uh, like a dyed black, you know, like a green army shirt that had been dyed black. Para boots, you know, paratrooper boots. And, uh, and a black leather jacket on which I had hand-painted with white acrylic paint various pictures and slogans and titles of, uh, like, horror films. Hellblazer, I remember. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I had... Well, no, I didn't, ty- I didn't paint Hellblazer on it. I think what I painted was the, the six faces of the Le Marchand configuration, which, as we all know, is the correct term for the, the little puzzle box in the Hellraiser film. So I get, like I did a proper... Down one arm, it had all six of those faces, like sort of spread out, like a little, a little what's it called? When not tessellating, when you have something and the shape can be folded into a an object. Oh, no, just a, a pla- not a plan or something. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like you yeah. get a cube, you take it to bits, and it's those six faces. So it was those. So I, so I had wood kind of, and I had the the face of Morpheus from um, Pre Matrix. Not that Morpheus. <laughs> yeah, that's so um, fun. Not the original Greek one either. The uh, the the dream, the character dream of the endless. From the Neil Gaiman Sandman graphic novels, which I stand by. Those are great. I was a jerk. Those are great. <laughs> were you hanging out with other people who were dressing? I wasn't hanging way? out with anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, I was. I was hanging out at that time with my friend Noel, and he was also a much more committed. But he was also kind of not not even goth really. There wasn't really a word for it. I suppose a mosher, a metaler. You know, someone who was into Metallica and Megadeth and stuff like that, but in a very parochial suburban kind of a way. Um, so uh, Noel had much more of the courage of his convictions and got a lot of tattoos. And, you know, he grew his hair long when we were maybe 17. He started growing his hair long. And so I started growing my hair long. So at one time, for about a year or so, I had hair down to my belly button. Wow. long hair in a ponytail all the time. Um, which, you know, I wanted to look like. Who did I want to look like? I wanted to look like the crow. Remember the movie The Crow? That when that movie came out, I read the graphic novel first, right? I was in the comics, and then the movie was coming out of The Crow, and uh, it was the best thing I'd ever seen. And the fact that Brandon Lee died, rest his soul, the fact that he died during it gave me that extra creepy kind of element, but I didn't even need that. It was just the fact of, like, you know, it was just an archetype. What I see now through the lens of, like, yes, it was a white male rage movie, but at the time it felt like, oh, this is what I want. I want... um. 
What's Charlie Brooker's description of um, the band Limp Biscuit? He said, a bunch of men in their 30s throw a tantrum on your behalf. <laughs> it was like that. It was like the crow was like, uh, yeah, I'm so angsty and no one gets me, man. I feel all this pain and this heartbreak. Or I sort of wish I did. I kind of, you know, I felt a, a bit anxious and a bit depressed sometimes. I was like, I really identified with this kind of, it was kind of simultaneously alternative and um, and kind of, Dirty, and there was probably a kind of sexual element to it, where it was a bit bondagey, and uh, and so I would. God, it's all coming back to me now. I would, uh, I would walk around. I wasn't, I wasn't wearing the bowler hat, but I would walk around. Let's not forget Leamington Spa, <laughs> right? Which at the time I thought was a shithole. I've since seen a lot more of the country <laughs> thanks to stand up, and I realised it was a very nice, uh, tidy, privileged place. Um, I would walk around Leamington Spa, age sixteen dressed in these black leather trousers, uh, not leather, black uh, combat trousers, paratrooper boots with the laces kind of triple tied around them, the big long laces, a black shirt or, sort of, you know, like a nine-inch nails sleeveless shirt, a black duster coat, and I'm saying duster in air quotes because that was what it was called in the catalogue. What was the catalogue called? It's pre-internet, man. We had to get our clothes <laughs> for a catalogue. It was called something, God, someone will know. It was called something like metal... Oh, like metalware or something. God, I'll look it up. It was, God, it was my luck. When I first found this little brochure, it's like, you can use your dad's credit card and they'll send you a purple tie-dyed Nine Inch Nails t-shirt. Yes! <laughs> did he know that you were buying uh, stuff? Yes, of course he did. Yeah, yeah I wasn't rebelling and nicking the stuff. Yeah. I'm like, Dad, can I get something you'll hate? Some, I mean, he did. We, we slightly clashed on that. He, he thought I looked scruffy. I absolutely looked scruffy. I haven't even got to the best bit, right? The best bit would be the, the long black duster coat. Yeah, was that to the ground? Uh, nearly to the ground. It's, I mean, looking back, it was a bit Columbine, but that hadn't happened then. <laughs> it was it was down to kind of shin level, mid shin. And on my hands, I would wear either two black leather fingerless gloves or one black leather fingerless <laughs> glove. And on the other side, I would have like some strips of red or black cloth that I would have wound around my hand. There's sort of improvised kind of bandage slash slash bracelet. And you, God, I was rad. And you, what's weird, you felt more comfortable walking around dressed like that than wearing a bowler hat. Uh, yeah, well, yes, but the bowler hat, I, the bowler hat wouldn't have... I mean, A, hats don't suit me. Never have. God, ever. I was walking around uh, the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival recently wearing uh, uh, a flat cap, like a Peaky Blinders flat cap, but like really far back on my head with a bit of fringe coming out underneath the brim because my wife told me it looked good. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, finally, a hat that looks good. And people were very much divided. My friend Janine gave me a lift into town. I said, so, what do you reckon about the hat? And she immediately, like, no spare my feelings. She was like, not keen. Glad you mentioned it. <laughs> um, so I don't look good with hats. But I've got a, I've got a pointy fox-like face so, and a big head. So for it to fit on my head, it would need to be a big dome-shaped black bowler hat. It would have looked fucking preposterous, even if I had been wearing, like, a grey three-piece suit, you know, and a pinstripe and being, you know, John Cleese or whatever. It, that would have looked terrible, but I wouldn't have wanted to wear it with a grey pinstripe suit. I would have wanted to wear it with the kind of black, you know, leather slash fabric kind of gear. I would have wanted to wear it with that as part of some sort of Tim Burton-esque look. But I think even I had the wherewithal to go, a bowler hat isn't going to work with this. But I, I, the other reason I wanted to wear it was because I could do some quite impressive tricks with it. I could do... I could flip it off onto my foot and I could kick it into the air and catch it on my head, I would say, eight times out of ten. Um, and I could do... I, at one point, was quite good at... I could. So you take the hat off, you hold it with your right hand with your fingers inside the bowl of the hat, 
and you flick it in your outstretched arm out perpendicular to your body and you roll it from one hand all the way down across your shoulders to the other hand and then you catch it at the other hand. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like I could do some circus shit, right? Yeah. So I I probably didn't learn that until I was more like 18, 19. I went to circus school Mm. and um, just for a year. But I normally don't say that bit because it sounds cooler if you don't say that bit. So I could... uh, Cooler? Question mark? (laughs) so, uh, uh, So I could do a couple of tricks. So part of me wanted to sort of have a permanent trick just as if anyone would, as if, as if, as if at some point there would be the need to distract someone by doing a bowler hat trick or to impress a girl or something. God, oh, I hate myself. Was it during that at one point you could just say, do a trick, just like walking down the street, just impress people, then carry on walking? Yeah, God. Um, yeah, anything, anything like that. I, um, uh, uh, Pete Dobbing, you know, stand-up comedian, a dear friend of mine, he and I sort of first met and first bonded over... We were both street performers in Covent Garden. He was very new. We only hung out, like, once or twice. And on our way to a tube station, we both took out our then-paper tickets back in the olden days. And uh, they're a perfect size and... Uh, uh, not texture, what is it? The amount of give, flimsiness, whatever it is. Um, it's perfect for doing what's called a backhand production, which is that... The trick I always associate with Will Smith in the Men in Black video where you go, like, there's the back of my hand, there's the front of my hand, and bang, there's a card in it, right? Okay, so that yeah, yeah. a magic trick. It's absolutely perfect size and flexibility, I suppose, to, to do with that. So we both got our t- train tickets out of the hand, and as we walked up to the barrier, we both, in a slightly, like, we would tell you now, it was, I was totally unconscious, I just did it all the time, we were both slightly trying to be seen by the other one, but we both <laughs> did it, and we are like, oh, God, we're going to get on well. <laughs> so, um... Uh, yeah, so the idea of sort of doing little kind of tricks here and there. It was just another way of asserting my difference to the sort of drone-like uh, school that I went to. So anything that could possibly, and God, that implanted that in me a long time ago, that idea of there is there are two worlds. There is the drone world where you are pupil number 1756 and you're called by your surname and you are alone and it feels like prison and you have to wear a special jacket and you don't know the rules of any of the games and it's just awful. I hated every minute of it. And then there was the drama group at the weekends being funny, showing off. There's girls. You know, it's exciting. And then also there was sort of, even before that, there was kind of like a, like a, a sort of an alternative culture undercurrent in my life there was sort of like I was reading zines and uh, comics and like but interesting comics not just Marvel kind of I, I like Marvel comics but I was reading like Warren Ellis comics and, and Neil Gaiman comics and it was like oh the idea of story and the idea of something being more real than reality and something being mythical and archetypal and and so it felt like oh the drone world I, in fact I was just thinking about it now I suppose what it felt like at the time was the drone world that I was trying to escape with all apologies to anyone who has a regular job or has to wear a suit. Um, but I was trying to escape that world. And when I discovered that kind of subculture of um, of story and myth and all the rest of it, to me, that seemed to give the lie to the drone world. That made that seem as if people who had regular jobs weren't just... It's not just a case of, like, they're doing the normal thing and I want to do something different. It was like, oh, the normal thing is something interesting and actually what they're doing is ignoring all of the richness and it's like they're the alternative i'm doing what you're supposed to do which is give a shit about 
I mean, I I'm finding it hard to sum it up, but if I say story and narrative and myth and drama and... I don't mean drama in a kind of drama group way, although that's obviously what that's there for, but just the sort of electrifying addiction to a sort of narrative. Like I still now, when I read that bit I did in the show you saw last night about the book Grandad's Island, Grandpa's yes. Island, when I'm reading stories to my baby and I've not read the story before and it's well written, and it's literally like it might be 10 pages, but the moment when you realise what it's really about, like halfway through an episode of South Park where you go, oh, that's clever. That to me is sort of the most, one of the most exciting things in the world. So recognising from these, from like Neil Gaiman comic books where you'd read it, like American Gods is on at the moment on Amazon Prime. That's based on a, a Neil Gaiman novel. And it's uh, the, the premise of the novel is that all the gods are real and people don't believe in the old gods anymore. And so the power of a god is related to the amount of belief that humans have in it. So if you know a bit of mythology and a bit of trickster archetype and a bit of short stories and the rest of it, you quickly clock that when... And this isn't a spoiler because the series took a different route on this. Um, but you kind of like there's an African god and he's called Mr. Nancy and you and he scuttles and you go, oh, that's a Nancy. That's that's like a coded. He's going to be he's going to turn out to be a Nancy, the spider god from the old trickster stories of the stories of a Nancy. So you get to feel like you go, oh, great. I noticed a thing, a secret, like a mythical archetypal kind of subcultural thing and I also get to pat myself on the back for having noticed it because it's been deliberately drip fed to be such that I would notice it in that way so I don't know what that has to do with me dressing like a bad goth but I think there is a link there is some sort of like I wanted to be part of something different that also felt more real I'm Nick Friedman I'm Lee Alec Murray and I'm Leah President and this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect we are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't, right? Hold now. it in. Hold and our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Were you trying to visually show other people that that's what you were interested in? Good question. Um, that's a good question. I don't think I ever thought, oh, if there are other people who are into that, they'll get me. They'll, it's like putting up a flag so they'll spot me. No, I don't think I ever did think that. That seems a weird. You'd have thought so. Um, I was trying to show the people who were normal that I wasn't one of them. I wasn't trying to act as a beacon to meet other people. I was just trying to go, what you like, I'm not that. Well, I'm trying to think... And I, I well, say I'm just, this, I, yeah. I'm making this sound now like it was a reasoned series of steps that's yes. defensible. This was an awful spotty Herbert of a 16-year-old. <laughs> it's just that some of the principles he believed in, I still believe in. But what I'm trying to uh, work out is if you were choosing to say dress like that because you wanted to dress like that, or you were dressing like that because you wanted to put out a message you know did you actually enjoy wearing those clothes or did you enjoy what what reaction you got from wearing them? oh i got no reaction at all so it must be the first one <laughs> no one cared i love the idea that someone might care but no and, I, and if they had reacted i wouldn't have known how to behave because i'm secretly a nice boring person <laughs> but i think i liked to fantasize that there would be a reaction and i did like the basic stuff i find you know the clothes were some of them were quite practical, not on hot days, of course, but you know, the boots <laughs> were quite hard wearing. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose I wanted to emulate like Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails or look a bit like Death off uh, from The Sandman or, or those sorts of things. I, yeah, I don't think I was trying to cause a reaction so much as just trying to feel fulfilled in myself to feel like oh this is an identity this is who i am i'm I'm this person this is you know yeah i just wanted to you know i was completely in search of uh in search of an identity for a long time and i think that was one of the the means the way i dressed and the getting into the circus stuff that was like oh yeah i'm that guy i'm the guy that can i can do tricks right that's a thing that's a part of my identity at my wedding my uh my godson was there he is 12 or nearly and um no, he's 11. He's definitely 11. He was doing side flips off a wall for money. <laughs> and that, and he gets, he is something similar to me. It's probably partly my fault. Um, but he, he's a bit shy. And so he was asserting his identity by being the kid who can do side flips and impressing adults and making them giving money. And it just kind of, it became a currency through which he could be present at the party. And I suppose I was doing something similar. When did it change then? When did you stop feeling that you needed to do that? That's a very good question. Um, I suppose when I went to... I was still dressing like that when I went to circus school. So that was... I was about uh, 18, 19. Um, And I had long hair all throughout circus school. Very long hair. Impractically long hair when you are doing trapeze and, you know, aerial stuff and sweating a lot and needing several showers a day. Impractically long hair. In the last week of circus school, I went, oh, bollocks, and shaved it all off. And went, <laughs> what was I doing having long hair? 
And I suppose that had some sort of quality to it, like kind of shape. I'm, you know, I've tried to cling on to who I was as a teenager, but it's no longer practical. But then I just went off. I mean, I, I then after circus school, I then went to did a degree in a crazy hippie art college in North Devon, South Devon. And I remember there, that was kind of, I was still casting about not knowing what my identity was, but I went through a lot of different types of, the the outfit I most remember from there was those big, big, very 90s, it was 2000, but they were still very 90s, <laughs> big trousers, like big grunge long trousers with big pockets and like a loopy belt you could put a hammer in on the side. Oh, did you wear a chain with it? I didn't, but they were those sort of trousers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Never got around to the chain bit, but they were those. And I wasn't, I was like, this isn't really me, but it's, what's the alternative? Skinny jeans? No, thanks. I now wear pretty skinny jeans, but not skinny, just, you know, that's the way. Wear this, you'll look good. I wear it. Or people start telling me I look good. No, she must be right. <laughs> so those, chunky skate boy. It was kind of, I was never a skater, but a sort of a skate boy aesthetic. And I would routinely wear a bit of a, and again, military surplus. It was like a kind of Parker coat with a big Velcro pouch pocket, like a map pocket. I, and I would roll up the sleeves. I probably wore that for three years. Oh, Lord. And in the last couple of months of college, I remember my hair. I went, I would, I would routinely bick my head. I'd shave it completely, shave it completely bald, which looked terrible for me. My nose is far too long for me to be having a bald head. <laughs> um, and in the very last couple of months, I did a, a clown show as my final piece of my degree, which was a kind of a fucked clown show that was sort of falling apart and like deliberately failing and all the gags went wrong and stuff fell apart, but it was quite dark and twisted, man. Um, but I did, I did blow my entire uh, budget on explosives. Which I'm very, very proud of. <laughs> and I then took that show to the Edinburgh Festival where it inspired a young Nick Helm. Wow. And him and his mates saw the show and it was one of the things called Low Jinx. And it was one of the things that made him, apparently he told me years later, he was like, you were that guy. That was quite exciting. Um, but for that, I had like a, like as long as my hair is now across the back half of my head with a line bisecting from ear to ear and the front half of my head was bicked completely clean. So I looked like a weird kind of Kung Fu monkey God. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just desperately, just desperately struggling for identity. I didn't know what I did. It was only when I became a street performer full time that I went, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. And then I got bored of that and started to lose confidence in it and go, I don't know, this isn't satisfying me. And then I became a stand-up comedian in 2005. And then I went, oh, thank God. And at that point, I didn't need to dress up anymore because, well, I suppose when I, when I, I'm still answering the question about when did I, when did I stop dressing like that? It gradually phased out over uni. And then when I became a street performer, I was surrounded by people who were genuinely 24-7 living the life of being an alternative subculture. Not all of them, but a lot of the ones I gravitated towards. And you started to realise... <laughs> I never really thought about it like this. It's so exciting. I started to realise, oh, there are the people who are genuinely alternative. And they're nice to your mum because they're not dicks. They're just genuinely alternative. They genuinely exist outside of a regular society. They do something different, but they don't bang on about how different they are. And then they're the people who constantly bang on about how different they are. And they walk around in their costume. At Covent Garden, we would call them buscarados. (laughs) And the sort of people who are just like, I'm so different, man. I'm just going to wear my costume 24-7. And I'm, you know, often tattooed, sometimes big exotic haircuts and stuff. Of course, I know lovely people who have tattoos and exotic haircuts, but exotics. This is the I sound like partridge. But, you know what I mean? I'm trying not to make any individual identifiable. 
But my point is, there were people walking around looking like my 16-year-old wet dream, and I didn't find them genuine. It's like me. If I got, if I was 16, I made all my decisions for the rest of my life there and then, got all the tattoos, got all the gear, and then kept walking around in it into my 20s and 30s and 40s. And, and come on, man. Wear all that stuff when you're 16. Great. But actually, what's more honest and more true to that kind of archetypal idea of, like, narrative, story, drama, myth... For me, all the things that are magical about street performing and magical about stand-up comedy, the nature of an audience, the fact of this magical thing that happens when you create a a 200-person street show out of thin air or when you go on stage just being a punter, basically, just jeans and a T-shirt and you get up out of the audience and you're suddenly the focus and you take everyone on this journey. All of those kind of things, you absolutely don't need to be wearing a bowler hat to do that. Why do you think you kept the hat? Because you've still got it. I still have it, and I have the the two hats that it turned into, that it kind of, you know, when it eventually fell apart, and then would buy the replacement, but I have all of them. Yeah, why did I keep it? For the same reason the leather jacket is hanging up in my loft. Um, I could never throw it out. It's it's like a... It's like a uh, do you know what it is? This is... Oh, I've got to destroy any remnants of credibility. I'm going to use a Harry Potter term. <laughs> you read Harry Potter? Yeah. It's a port key, isn't it? That's what port keys are. It's memory. Yes. You know I, mean? that I think it's an analogy. It's, it's an allegory for memory. It's an object that when you hold it, you're transported somewhere. And, you know, I can smell it. It smells. Yes. It puts me right back there. No one summarised the feeling of exactly why I make this podcast <laughs> so clearly. But it is, I've got piles of stuff like that. Like I've got, like, say, I've read on this a few times a couple of poems that I wrote. And I've just got a book. I don't, and when I pick up that book, I just think about when I wrote it, who I was and that. And it's just like, yeah. when you smell that jacket, you can uh, yeah. remember all the good and awkward yeah. things that it creates. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be precious. You have to not use it up because you, you can use it up if, it, if, the, if the thing becomes commonplace. Like um, uh, my godson's dad as I did, used to paint little miniatures, you know, the Warhammer 40,000, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Things. This is very much all part and parcel of, that's my day out in Levington Spa, dress like a twat, pop into Games Workshop, then go to Mystique <laughs> and buy a crystal. Just awful. Um, but he, like, I suppose I've got some somewhere. Part of me wants to give them to my child to play with when he's old mm. enough to appreciate them. But I, I suppose you it's magical once to look at and you kind of feel that energy shimmering off it and you're right back there but if it becomes part of someone else's life and it's lying around your house and the rest of it you probably it probably loses its potency mm. so my child will never play with my hand <laughs> he can he can touch it once on his 21st birthday um and are you happy that you shared the hat with me enormously enormously it was really fun to talk about and i'm much less ashamed of it now there is so i like i'm aware of what a dork i was right like i was well-meaning right if you think about what some young adult men get up to now on the internet (laughs) you know like because in my mind when i started thinking about the the bowler hat it for me these days it has connotations with a fedora and you know i mean the kind of game that whole sort of weird subculture of trying to pick women up by you know, learning, working on your gaming technique, which is all predicated on the lie that you don't do this to every single woman you meet. Yeah. You know, you never, that's never your opening move. Hi, I'm going to try and pick you up now like I've just done with a hundred other women. Um, so it has sort of links to that. And I think looking back on it now, I wasn't that guy. 
Yeah, I was self-obsessed. I still am very much self-obsessed. But I've managed to turn it to a career. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't feel as negative toward it now. I feel kind of rueful and like, Ugh. you know, I feel quite good about it. And it's been a really fun kind of, uh, I found it very invigorating to think about, I was very excited to be asked, why did you stop dressing like that? I've never thought about that. And there's a lot of photos in existence of me looking like an absolute <laughs> And uh, it's quite interesting to sort of chart how that changed. I feel like I've got a very bad memory. Um, I'm terrible with dates. I can't remember. You know, people can go like, oh, the, you know, the Oscar winner in 2001. I'm like, literally, how would you know what date a thing came out? No idea. Terrible with history, terrible with news, current affairs, people in my life, everything. <laughs> but probably because I'm giving so much focus to my own life the entire time. Um, so it's very nice to reminisce. I can see why the elderly find this. It's a thing, isn't it? For the elderly, it's like reminiscence therapy or something. You've got yeah. to talk to them about the old days. You should do that. <laughs> you should use your podcasting powers for good. Well, I have spoken to my granddad on this, who's 84. You already know your granddad. Go and meet some old people who are lonely and go and ask them about stuff. Um, all right, my final question is, if you could go back and speak to yourself the day that you brought that hat, what would you say? Oh, wonderful. I would say, don't worry. It all works out. It all works out. All of the all of the alternativeness that you want to be, you will find a level. You will be as alternative as you want to be. And you will also be as normal as you know in your heart that you are. You do it. And then I'd stop and I'd go, oh God, unless it was all that worry that was making it happen. In fact, ignore me. Ignore <laughs> me. I've ended up with a great life. Keep doing all the worrying. It, it gets us to a good place. Amazing. Thank you so much, no Stu. And then I'd have to go back a second time and kill the me that went back the first time just to avoid any kind of ripple. <laughs> Stu, you're about to go to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes. Where can people find you? Uh, they can come and see my show at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, at 3.45pm daily at the Liquid Rooms Annex. It's a free show, but do bring money. Uh, that's on from the 5th to the 27th. If you'd like to catch up with the podcast, you can do that at comedianscomedian.com or look for the Comedians Comedian podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. I've got to find a new way to say that. It's become a little bit by rote. But um, yes, lots of interviews with people like Bill Burr and Jimmy Carr and Russell Brand and stuff, where I uh, uh, talk to them about their comedy and creativity. And I've heard that it's one of the best edited podcasts the on the internet. The editor of that podcast is an upstart toe rag <laughs> who should know better than to start his own multiple podcast projects when he should be editing my show, Daryl. <laughs> uh, cheers, Stu. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been I'd Sooner Forget This. My guest this week was Stuart Goldsmith. If you've got a second, could you just give it a quick review on iTunes? That would be amazing. Share it with a mate. And if you haven't got the time for that, then just click subscribe and wait for next week's episode. Thank you. That's Bye. all you have to do in your life is click subscribe <laughs> and then wait. 